Hi, everyone. My name is Miles Surratt, and I serve as the Assistant Director for Leadership in the Center for Student Engagement at George Washington University. I'm also happy to be your host for the NASPA Leadership Podcast presented by the Student Leadership Program's Knowledge Community. My guest today is Ama Marfo. Ama is an independent higher education professional writer and editor based in Boston, Massachusetts. She holds a bachelor's degree in communication studies from the University of Rhode Island and a master of education degree from the University of South Florida. Ama is an avid and prolific writer, and she writes often for her own blog, The Dedicated Amateur, is a contributing editor to the Niche Movement blog and guest blogs in a variety of other places, Idea Blend EDU, NASPAS LPKC, and, TKC, uh, and the TKC blogs, and The Good Project. Her first book, The Eyes Have It, Reflections on Introversion and Student Affairs, was released in January 2014, and her second book, Light It Up, was released in October 2015. Welcome, Mama. Hi, Miles. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, thanks for being here. Uh, so we'll go ahead and get started with a regular segment that we do called Rapid Fire. So I'm going to ask... I'm going to ask you a big, silly question and limit you to a 30-second response, although as I tell most folks, I am not inclined to pull out the stopwatch, so if you go a little over, no worries. Uh, Sounds good. Okay, so I know you're an avid reader and uh, understand you occasionally read books back-to-back, which when you mentioned that to me, uh, kind of blew my mind. So what is the best back-to-back book you've ever encountered? So I'll say this is an exceedingly rare instance, but every now and again I'll do it. Um, and aside from the stock answer of saying I read my own books multiple times on end just to make sure that there were no typos or errors, um, the last book I read back-to-back mm-hmm. that I did not have any part in producing was Tina Fey's Bossy Pants. Um, I was on family vacation, and I had probably four or five books with me, but I finished Bossy Pants and said, let's give this one another go and just flipped right back to the beginning and started over. Uh, so that was how much I really liked it. I can't. I can't think of a better tribute to a to a book than to read it back to back. Yeah, I hadn't had enough yet, so I just started over. Okay, so Ama, you provide an annual reading list on your website, amamarfo.com. So I need your help. My family has a very passively aggressive competitive book swap once a year. I mean, this <laughs> thing is. It's really brutal, uh, and I always feel inadequate with, my, with the quantity of reading that I'm doing in that space. So what new book should I bring next July to wow the family? So I love this question. Um, I wish there was a book swap in my family. Um, I feel like I would be the only one that took it very seriously, and everyone else would take it a little bit seriously. Um, mm. But when I was thinking about this, I had two answers. You could either go very pedantic and pick something like, the Handbook of Student Affairs Administration, the people mm-hmm. know you're doing very serious reading. Mm-hmm. Oh, or, that's a good idea. They would hate that, though. They would be like, oh, I don't, you know, and I want that. Give me some, I want the hot <laughs> fiction. That's what they're looking for. Oh, hot fiction. I was going to say my other answer would be something a little bit more literal to what you're doing, um, which is a great book um, by a behavior economist named Adam Grant called Give and Take, which given a book swap is the perfect name for a book, but it also happens to be a really good book about how we treat people, how it gets you ahead in business, and what being a giver or a taker or a matcher, as he puts it, um, means about you as a human and what that means for your success overall. Mm. It's fairly new, but it's one of my favorite books to give to people um, just because it's a cool concept, and I think more people should be talking about it. Yeah, no, it sounds it sounds wonderful. So my next question, which is not on the script, but is 100% serious based on your uh, your previous uh, preface to that answer is, you sound like you're interested in this book swap. Will you go in my place next year? Yes, absolutely. Just let me know okay. where I need to be. 
All right. I think we're going to be in rural Wisconsin. We'll talk after. <laughs> That's good. Love I'm dying for someone to represent. So, all right. Uh, so, I understand you recently transitioned from being an avid live concert goer to preferring live comedy. So, what do you found to be compelling about live comedy? So, I think that it is a little bit more unpredictable than live music. Um, I mean, you could have an instrument go haywire, or you could like break a string on a guitar, or you could have power go out. But other than that, there's not a whole lot of change or potential for excitement that happens with live music. And compared to live comedy, when you look at how many different ways people could respond to it, um, how it hits people in certain ways, um, what kinds of topics get addressed, it feels a little bit more dynamic to me. Um, I just really, really like seeing how people figure out what they find funny and how people respond to what they find funny. Some people laugh out loud. Some people sit there and go, hmm, that's interesting. And being able to watch both the act and the audience response has been something so fascinating to me. It's, it's a little bit cerebral. One of my friends who's a comedian actually said to me, you go to comedy shows the way some people go to museums. And I just love looking at it, love seeing how it looks and finding different types. And it's just this odd thing that I picked up the last couple of years that I love to watch. Hmm. So it's kind of like sociology meets entertainment. Very much so. Like it would surprise you how many different ways people will act in those types of situations, and I just love love watching it play out. Hmm. All right, I might. I've never uh, I've never been to to much live comedy, so maybe I'm I'm gonna have to check that out because I I think I agree with your critique of live music. I mean, a lot of a lot of that is fairly fairly uh, it, some of that it can feel predictable. So. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So I know that you're I know that you're a fan of America's quietest phenomenon. So can you explain to everyone why they should be watching the Great British Bake Off? I can. So those who are avid PBS watchers may already be familiar with this phenomenon, but Great British Bake Off is a competitive baking show that originated in England probably four or five years ago. We just got it in the U.S. a couple years ago. And it is the most quietly relaxing yet highly competitive environment you will ever watch on television. It's really high-stakes baking and really sophisticated baking, but from 12 or 13 of the nicest people you will possibly meet. It's not edited, so there's a villain. It's not made artificially stressful. It's just people doing something they really love to do and supporting each other in it in a way that most American television outside of kids' competitive television isn't as pleasant. Like, I've described it to people as the kind of thing you would see in British adults or American children. So it's not artificially competitive. The stakes aren't higher than they should be. It's just so pleasant to watch. It's just a nice hour-long break um, from whatever it is that's stressing you out. First season's on Netflix. The second two after that are on, let me think, on PBS Passport. So if you're a sustaining member of your public uh, television, public radio station, you can get those. And there are a couple back seasons on YouTube, but I highly, highly recommend it. I think the point about the uh, kids' reality TV is a really – I think that that's a good comparison. And, and, my, uh, and my wife, uh, there's like a, the Venn diagram of enjoyment between that and uh, MasterChef Junior. I think it's the same part of her heart that is, that's really hitting there. Uh, it is. It's, it's just reassuring about humans but also really, really skilled um, individuals. I love it. Mm. 
Yeah, it's sort of like a, a reality TV, I feel like oftentimes sort of exposes like uh, the worst part of people as entertainment. Yeah. And yeah. these shows are kind of the opposite of that. It's like really celebrating people, which is a sounds more like reality television. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very much so. Mm. Okay, so uh, my last question for this segment is, what is the best book about leadership? Ooh, so this was a tough one because I am sitting in front of my bookshelf right now and I was scanning it and trying to figure out what my answer would be. And ultimately, I think one that played the biggest role in my personal leadership uh, journey would be Quiet by Susan Cain because it talks about the power of introverts and how to harness introverted qualities, introverted tendencies, into making an impact on the world. And I think if I hadn't read that book, my life would be going very, very differently. So that has to be my pick, Quiet by Susan Cain. Okay. I'm going to add that to the, I'm going to add that to the, to the National Leadership Podcast uh, reading list. Um, okay. okay, so for our next segment, we're going to transition to Higher Ed, Two Truths and a Lie. So I'm going to provide two true stories from Higher Ed current events and one lie, and I'm just going to have to parse out the lie. So the theme this week is an unsurprising repeat, as a, and I say that from a place of love as a, as a Southerner, uh, Southern oddities. So uh, we're going back to the well on Southern, Southern oddities. So Amr, you're ready for your three options. As someone who grew up in the South, I feel extremely ready for these three options. Let's do it. All right, here we go. So your first option is the University of West Georgia recently angered leaders in their local community of Carrollton, Georgia, for a large-scale marketing campaign titled Everything in the Middle of Nowhere. City Councilperson Met Lane called the comments egregiously demeaning to the community and almost certainly in an ineffective for their intended purpose. So that's your first option is Everything in the Middle of Nowhere from the University of West Georgia. Okay. Your second option is Motlau State Community College in Tennessee recently generated controversy for promoting an adjunct faculty benefit, or as the faculty referred to it, a perk of $10 off of fast food establishments on campus. Sorry, 10%, not $10. 10% off of fast food establishments on campus. Okay. And then your third option is that a new study out of LSU indicates judges who went to LSU as undergraduates are more likely to dole out harsh sentences the week following LSU's football team losing games they were expected to win. And the data set runs from 1996 until 2012. Okay. Hmm. My guess is B. I think B is the lie. Okay, you think B is the lie. Final answer? Final answer. Okay. So uh, you were correct that the LSU, uh, that the LSU one is correct. Um, that is a uh, unsurprising but shocking story that they were able to garner enough data to turn that into a report. Uh, it is true that LSU uh, undergraduate judges uh, dole out harsher penalties following uh, LSU losing games that they were supposed to win. It is Something also, about that felt very true, given my knowledge and understanding of Southern football. Like that just felt spot on. Yep. So that one. So that one is right, and not surprising, but fairly shocking, and you know, in a vacuum. Uh, the other one that is true is that uh, Motlau State Community College did generate some controversy for promoting an adjunct faculty benefit of 10% off of fast food establishments on campus. Okay. 
Yeah, the faculty felt very patronized that that was advertised to them, particularly given the adjunct faculty, particularly given that that 10% uh, off is also available to all students and full-time staff and full-time faculty. So. Oh, come on mm. then. So the one that was fake that I, that I made up just right here out of my noggin is the one about the University of West Georgia. Um, uh, I, they did not have a marketing campaign that sounded like that. Met Lane, surprisingly, that is a real person's name, though. Met Lane is a city council person from Carrollton, Georgia. So. It felt very credible. So that's on, that's on you. It, it read like a true news item. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I, uh, I am a, you know, I'm a professional with this. So. Well done. <laughs> Well done. Yeah, yeah. An another interesting thing is when you uh, Google Carrollton, Georgia City, uh, the first Google result is not council, it is pool. So maybe they have a good pool down there. I don't know. Uh, okay. <laughs> seems good like there's some interest. Yeah. All right. So for our next segment, we're going to transition to a segment designed to help our listeners understand AMA as a person and professional. So we're calling it Getting to Know AMA. So my first question is, what led to your leadership journey? What led you down this path? So a couple years ago, I actually wrote a version of this for the KC blog, um, and I like to characterize it as being largely an accident. I didn't really think I was a leadership educator. I always saw myself as more of a student activities professional who happened to um, help students find their leadership path, and then the more things started to come together and the more I started to find my voice about things I was interested in and where that value fell in the field, I think it kind of emerged as a leadership position accidentally because I ended up being somebody that a lot of people saw as a resource. Um, that came at first um, for a lot of the writing I was doing about introversion and how it affected student development, um, and now it's starting to come together with some other things like creativity and humor in the field. So. It wasn't a position I ever saw myself in originally, and the more research I did and the more people I talked to, the more I realized that the voice that I had um, meant something to people. And then I kind of tried to take on that leadership as best I could. So now here I am, having done something that I didn't think I would have done now close to 10 years after graduating college. It's been definitely a surprise in a lot of different ways over, over those 10 years. Hmm. Okay. So, Ama, you're a prolific writer. Um, what is your process and what advice do you have for people who are maybe slightly less inclined to writing for being successful and producing you know, large quantities of, of written work? So, for me, writing has always felt really comfortable. Um, I've been someone who journaled when I was a kid and wrote short stories when I was really, really young. So, writing has always felt like a natural way for me to express myself. It gives me time to think about what I want to say and how it would be said most effectively. I can tweak the language a little bit if I want. Um, and it's just always felt really natural. So a lot of the time my process will come from something I've read or seen or had a conversation with someone about. And the brain wheels kind of keep spinning after those conversations. So I'll pick up a topic like that and start to write things out, start to talk to people about it, and fill in some of the gaps and things that I wish I had said when I was in the moment with the person or I wondered about as I read, and just take the time to flesh out those thoughts. And I would say to those who feel disinclined to write, I would say that's okay because writing isn't necessarily everybody's natural form of expression, but I would say take the time to find what your natural form of expression is. So writing is one way of doing that. 
Uh, photography is one way of doing that. Video is a way of doing that. Podcasting such as this is becoming a more common way. So if you're disinclined to write, but you feel like you express yourself somehow differently, absolutely follow that. And I think if you're interested in writing and haven't yet, just start because you don't really become a writer until you're writing. It doesn't have to be good. doesn't have to be widely read. It just has to be out on the paper or on the screen wherever you choose to put it. That's the first step. Hmm. No, I think that that's, I think that's great advice. I think that, I think that writing is, it, I think the idea of writing is sort of the preeminent form of creative expression is probably uh, probably the relic of a time when there were less outlets for creativity in a public, in a public space. Um, yeah, and I think the more we have, the easier it is for people to find there. So take advantage of the possibility that we have so many different media now and find the one that suits you best. Hmm. Okay, so you mentioned Susan Cain earlier, but you know, what or who should people be reading uh, in addition to, to Susan Cain's work to create compelling leadership programs for students? So a more traditional read that I really like based on the outcomes that it brings out is the Student Leadership Competencies Guidebook that Dr. Corey Seemiller put out a few years ago. I think it speaks very logically to not just what you need to know to be effective in leadership, but also how to get those skills and why they're important. And I think a big thing that I see with students is they'll go through leadership programs or they'll do um, a lot of things around involvement, but then at the end don't have a great idea of how to articulate what they've just been through or how it's valuable. And I like Corey's book for its ability to say, by doing these things, I gain these skills, and here's what I can do with them. So it gives students a language that I've noticed often is missing um, from leadership programs. So I really like that it makes that a more intuitive and thoughtful process. Um, and I'll also actually throw out the name of another Adam Grant book he wrote, Give and Take, that I mentioned before. He also has a book called Original that talks about the qualities of creative individuals. And I have been very adamant about infusing creativity into a lot of the leadership training that I'm doing because I realized that sometimes when we give students a pathway or a guideline or a course sequence, they have a hard time deviating from that if they ever need to. So I like originals because it delineates some very specific traits um, that you can find to infuse creativity into your own life wherever you might want to put it. So talking about when you enter a process, are you an early adopter? Are you somebody that comes in uh, midway through the pack? Do you adopt it late? Um, when you do your best thinking, nighttime or daytime, and a lot of other things like that. So it makes being creative accessible. And I think a lot of other things about creativity previously have made it seem very mystical and something that only some people have. And Adam mm -hmm. Grant kind of makes the mm -hmm. argument that anybody can be if they know how and what to look for. So I really, really liked his book for that. Okay. Uh, so when student leadership programs aren't reaching their goals, what do you think has likely gone wrong there? I think sometimes that can have to do with how the goals are articulated or how students understand those goals. So for me, I'll work with students fairly often who have done really strong things and have really powerful experiences that any employer would be lucky to have, but when it comes down to articulating those on a resume or in a cover letter or in an interview, they just don't have the words or the language to describe it. So 
So I don't know that I would say that any leadership program wouldn't be achieving those things, but I think a big part of being successful in that realm is having students be able to say, this is what I got from that experience, and here's how it applies in this new environment. So being able to take something valuable and make it valuable somewhere else um, is something that's really important to that process. And I find that if a leadership program fails, that's generally the most common, is that students can't transfer or articulate the powerful experiences that they've had. Mm. Okay. All right. So the, our last segment is called Six Big Leadership Questions. So uh, our first question in, in this segment, which is certainly our most topical, is you're providing content now on idea framing and gar garnering influence. So what model is that built upon? So as I speak about influence, I use Barnes' influence model, which has four different pieces of it that aren't necessarily steps. They don't need to be sequential, but it's more four considerations to think about when framing an argument or trying to influence decision makers about something that you'd like to create change in. And I think when we're talking about being leaders at this point, a tremendous piece of that is being able to command influence, help students make change, and have an impact on the environment that they're working in. So Barnes's model is the one that I've liked the most um, and had the most fun articulating with students. And I think it becomes very clear to them using that particular model. So how does Barnes's influence model help people think through how they're heard? So what it does is I think a lot of times when we go in with the idea of making change, we know very well what motivated our passion for that particular change or where we're thinking about the program ultimately ending up. And I like the Barnes model because it encourages you to think on the opposite side. So how is somebody receiving the information that you're giving? So they talk about results. So what do you want from the end result? And what is the best case scenario if you get what you want? Which most of us have pretty easily down. Like when we go in saying, I want to make a change, and if someone asks, what do you want out of this, that part's pretty easy to answer. But it also talks about the relationship with those you're trying to influence. What do you know about them? What do you not know about them? What role do they play in making the change that you want to see? Um, it talks about context. So where the goal that you're trying to influence fits? Is it a priority for the institution? Is it something they can act on right now at all? And then finally, the approach. So you know what you want to change, but how do you do that? So what behaviors do you put in place? What methods are you using? And are those methods or approaches something that the person that you're trying to influence is able to receive at that point? So I think it kind of slows down the acting in the heat of the moment to say, what is the best way for me to be heard to make an impact on the situation that I'm trying to make a change with? Hmm. So you mentioned, so you mentioned your, uh, your work with, with Barnes came out of some training that you did uh, on the corporate leadership sector. So what differences do you see between how corporate and college industries approach leadership training? So I learned about the Barnes model through a program for startups and entrepreneurial enterprises called Emerge that's run by a company out of Boston called Intelligently. And what I'm finding is there's a pretty wide swath of leadership development available on campuses to students, anybody that we deem willing to participate or people that we target and say, this is something you should go through. And I think the biggest difference between college and corporate leadership training is availability. I think that not 
every company deems that sort of thing valuable and not every um, professional that wants the opportunity to get leadership training will get it. So I like to talk to professionals that are providing leadership training with the very definite fact that for some people this is the last opportunity they will have to be trained in leadership. So I think it's a lot rarer on the corporate side. Um, Mm -hmm. And that being said, talking to students who are very focused on that end goal of, oh, well, I'm here to get a degree, and that degree will put me in a position of leadership, I would say the leadership topics that we're teaching are a part of that education. And depending on where you go, this may be the last chance you have to get that. So being able to articulate that to students who aren't sure if they're going to be very academically focused or take the time to do extracurricular and co-curricular enterprises, making sure that that point's driven home to them as well is you need this too, and if you don't get it here, you might not get it again. Hmm. Okay, so you're really known for your work on introversion within student affairs. You've written a book about it. You know, you're, there are videos of you all over the internet uh, talking about <laughs> introversion in student affairs. So. Uh, something that I've always sort of wondered about but never spent enough uh, enough time going into is what sort of science is between the, the binary uh, of introversion and extroversion? So I'm glad that you used the word binary because some of the science um, softens that a little bit. Mm. So what it more comes of a spectrum? Down, it is. It's more of a spectrum. So mm-hmm. essentially there are neural pathways in the brain that can be fueled by two main neurotransmitters. So one of them is dopamine and one of them is acetylcholine. Now, as you might guess, based on what most of us know about dopamine, extroverts tend to thrive under high amounts of dopamine, whereas introverts and those who test as introverted tend to be better fueled and deal with acetylcholine a little bit better. Now, acetylcholine moves slower and it's kind of a slow burn Um, neurotransmitter versus dopamine, which benefits quickness and a faster rush. And what the result of that is, and I like to tell people fairly often, is when we ask people questions on the spot, sometimes introverts will answer not because they haven't thought about it or because they don't have an answer, but the thought literally has not made it from their brain to their mouth yet. Hmm. So making processes and designing meetings, designing contribution opportunities that are sensitive to that means sometimes waiting a beat or two longer than we believe we have time for. Um, Mm. But the fact of the matter is, going back to the piece about binary, is that all brain systems have both. It's just a matter of which is in more abundance and how the brain responds to it. So there are no pure introverts. There are no pure extroverts. If that was the case, then there would be introverts that never left the house, and there would be extroverts that never went to sleep. So everybody's kind of Mm -hmm. comfortably between the two, Um, both of those neurotransmitters are present at all times, just a matter of how your brain responds to it and how much it's kind of sloshing around in, for lack of a more scientific term. That is wonderful information for me personally. I assume that other people also find it it interesting, but if not, at least one person learned. Uh, So what do do student leadership practitioners need to know to fully include extroverts in programming? So I alluded to that uh, in my previous answer. So talking about how much time we believe we have to do things. And I think a lot of things get rushed because we have a lot of content to fit in in a relatively short period of time. We're challenged by all the other priorities that students have, um, their attention spans, our attention spans, current events, 
And I think what the result is is a lot of times we rush through things. And I think that taking a beat to say, this can, we can take a little bit more time on this if it means having a better result, um, articulating that to students. So for example, if you have a weekly meeting with students and you need their input on things, giving them what you'll need their input on beforehand and asking them to consider it, as well as on the opposite side of that meeting saying, we'll take suggestions, submissions on this for 48 hours afterwards. Allowing that extra time will give opportunities for extroverts who think fairly quickly to go ahead and give their information out there, but then also those who might need a little bit more time to consider it can contribute meaningfully with that extra amount of time to kind of mull over ideas. And I think as long as the ideas that are submitted early aren't prioritized over the ones that came in later, you get a pretty even balance mm. of contribution. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so just to kind of just to kind of wrap this up and, and sort of provide provide a little bit of a bridge between these two areas of content, what connection do you see between your work with introversion and Barnes's thoughts on garnering influence? So when I first started looking from one to the next, it felt like a pretty sharp pivot. But the more I looked into what I was ultimately trying to say with it and what I ultimately valued, I see them as two different ways of finding the best way to express yourself. So creating environments that are amenable to introverts, be they students or faculty or staff, is just a way of being in an environment where you can express yourself in a way that you'll be heard. So doing things like creating more time for students to contribute or being able to consider things in multiple mediums, so writing versus video versus in person, all that is is just expanding opportunities that students have to be heard in the way that they speak most strongly. And with influence, all that is is figuring out, again, what the best method is to be heard in a way that a person needs to hear you. So it's not tailoring, it's not tailoring the message overly. It's not saying things in a manner that's disingenuous, but it's just saying, what is the best way for me to express myself to be successful? So I see them as two different versions of the same thing, just applying two different factors to it. Okay. Well, thanks everyone for joining us for the NASA Leadership Podcast presented by the NASA Student Leadership Program's Knowledge Community. And thanks so much to Amma Marfa for joining us on the podcast today. It was such a delight to have such a amazing resource and mind and person uh, to, to speak with today. Um, so thanks for being here. Uh, um, uh, last question, if you had one bit of advice to give to an aspiring student leadership practitioner, what would you pass along? So I would say keep your eyes open and keep your mind open to anything that could influence the work that you do. Um, a lot of the literature that I reference and a lot of the things that I read are related to the field, but a lot of them aren't. And I find that being able to have a wide view on what could make our students better, it really only benefits them because we look at the world through a higher ed lens, but so many of the students that we touch and work with are going to be working in the business world or engineering, education, a lot of different lenses that we maybe don't have as close an eye on. So I think being able to expand our knowledge makes them more marketable, more useful, more creative. So I would say 
don't confine any of the source material for what you're trying to teach to just what we do. So many fields are doing leadership development well. So many fields are doing just regular course of business things that can strengthen our leadership. So keep your eyes open to being inspired by anything that you see, and then build things that give your students the best opportunity to be successful. Okay. Great. So you can catch up with Ama on Twitter at Amamarfo and on our website at Amamarfo.com, and that's A-M-M-A-M-A-R-F-O.com. Uh, and you can get more information about the knowledge community on our various social media outlets, including Facebook, which is facebook.com backslash SALead, on Twitter at NASPA SLPKC, on Instagram at NASPA underscore SLPKC. And you can also connect with me on Twitter at Miles, that's M-Y-L-E-S underscore Surrett, that's S-U-R-R-E-T-T. And finally, if you're interested in being a guest on the podcast, we'd love to hear about your program, so please shoot an email to NASPA Leader Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks, Amma. Thanks, Lyle.